This is Research Software Engineer Stories, coming straight at you from USRSC, the U.S. Research Software Engineer Association. Welcome to ROC Stories. I'm Vanessa Socket, and joining me today is Greg Becker, a computer scientist at Lawrence Livermore National Lab in the Livermore Computing Team. Greg is active in several open source projects maintained by the lab, which I hope we'll get a chance to talk about today, and also provide support for software and associated tools to the lab at large. But before we jump into details, Greg, welcome to RSC Stories. Thank you. So let's start and talk a little bit about your background. Maybe start, take us back to when you first encountered programming or high-performance computing, and tell us how you wound up working at a national lab. Well, how I first ended up programming is a fun story. I um, was a sophomore in college, took one course. And at some point, maybe halfway through the semester, I was getting razzed pretty good by my friends, couldn't handle it anymore, and went off to the computer science lab to do my work and cool down for a bit and worked for you know a couple hours until I had calmed down and realized that if I was going to have that sort of relationship with programming, I should probably change my major. And that's how I ended up in computer science. Maybe a year and a half later, I was looking for an internship and emailed Todd Gamblin, who's also at Lawrence Livermore National Lab. He was an alum of Williams College, where I was studying, and was looking for some information about getting an internship, what that would take, and scheduled a phone call to talk about it. And we spent maybe an hour, hour and a half talking about his research. And at the end of the call, I thought he was going to schedule an interview. And he asked when I could let him know if I wanted to come work at the lab for the summer. So that summer ended up then being my introduction to HPC. I hadn't really worked in HPC at all before being an intern at the lab. And then from there, applied for a full-time job as well. Wow, that's really great that you kind of stumbled into things that you love. So you talked originally about programming like it was very therapeutic, very relaxing. Can you tell us how that is for you? I guess therapeutic, yes. Relaxing, no. There's something therapeutic in being very focused on something. And to someone who doesn't do computer science at all, I often talk about what I do is basically solving a series of logic puzzles all day. And the focus that comes with that sort of problem solving, I find very mentally healthy, at least for myself. I don't know whether it would serve that function for everyone else or even anyone else, but that's how it frequently works for me. Yeah, I can definitely relate to that. For me, programming, I guess it's therapeutic because I get into this state of focus where everything just flows and it's like a happy state, I suppose. So when you were first at Lawrence Livermore, what was that like, like being on the campus for the first time? It was definitely an adjustment. I think, first of all, just to the sort of secure environment that Lawrence Livermore is and having to come in through a guard gate every morning and all of that definitely took some adjustment. And then there was also just adjustment to working in a productized environment. It's a little different than working in business, but it's a lot more like working in business than it is like doing your homework in college. Just adjusting to that sort of real life certainly takes a bit of getting used to. So let's kind of zoom ahead now, and I want to sort of bring to the front what's been happening in the last couple of weeks. 
we've been attending supercomputing, SC20, and some of the software that you work on is sort of very prominent at this event. So do you want to talk about what you've been up to in the last couple of weeks? Sure. So I work on SPAC for most of my time. And SPAC is a package manager for high-performance computing, but it's not restricted to high-performance computing. I use it on my laptop as my package manager. But what about it is particular to high-performance computing is that it builds from source and it allows you to build different permutations of the same software and have them coexist on your system. So instead of using APT or YUM and you get your one configuration of Zlib and you're going to be happy with it, with SPAC, I can install every permutation of Zlib that I can think of and then compare them or build out different software stacks against different ones, whatever it is that I need to do. So last Monday and Tuesday, 10 days ago, we had SPAC tutorial at Supercomputing. The fourth year, I think, that we've done that, the third year that it's been a full day tutorial, of course, in the virtual format, they did the full day tutorials spread across two days this year. We make all the materials for that available online as well, so people can do that. We present the tutorial a few times a year. And then on Thursday, Massimiliano Culpo presented a paper on ArchSpec, which is a component that we factored out of SPAC into a standalone library for reasoning about architecture information. So you can do things like detect that you're running on a Skylake computer or check whether a code built for Power 8 can run on Power 9, things like that, that are integral to actually working with installed software. Uh, you can see where having lots of different configurations of a given piece of software installed, you could need this, but it's also very relevant for container runtimes. And then just yesterday, we had the SPAC BOF, the Birds of a Feather session. So talking about what's new in SPAC and what the roadmap is, taking questions, and went over the user survey that we had out in September, I think, was when we gathered the information for that. And in conjunction with that, we released version 0 0.16.0 of SPAC sometime in the early hours of Wednesday morning. I know I was up till three in the morning figuring out some last details for that. When you kind of look at the SPAC landscape, what next step or feature are you most excited about? I think there's two that kind of go hand in hand. So we have a new concretization algorithm in SPAC that's experimental in this most recent version. And it's experimental in part because there's some bootstrapping problems to get it running that we need to make a little more seamless. But that allows us to use a full SAT solver and Dependency resolution is an NP-complete problem, so it's very exciting to have a full SAT solver for that. We're not having to use a heuristic model anymore, so we're actually able to solve a lot more user requests. So I'm very excited to have that in fully. And then the, the second one is changing the model for compilers in SPAC so that they're treated just like any other dependency. From the beginning of SPAC's development, we've had compilers as a, an attribute on every package that we install. And that makes a lot of sense for HPC. We define a compiler as providing C, C++, and Fortran. And for HPC, that basically covers everything. But in the broader world of software, plenty of things 
either don't depend on any of those languages at all or have other compilers that they need. Go is a compiled language, for example. And so broadening that model out a little bit, I think, is going to enable us to much more closely model the real world of software. I'm guessing that working on spec is much more than just programming or responding to issues on GitHub. Can you kind of zoom out a bit and tell us what it takes to support such a large software community? I guess the first thing to do with that is that my job has two communities, really. There's a large software community externally in SPAC, and there's also a large internal user community at the lab. And obviously, the external community is larger, but in terms of my particular role on the team, I actually handle more of the internal user-facing side of things, and other folks handle more of the external community, although obviously it's not that strict a bifurcation. One of the biggest things is comfort with the code base in terms of how quickly we can resolve something. There are lots of times where I would absolutely drown in user requests if I had to do this two years ago, three years ago, when I was just that much less familiar. And I've been working on SPAC for five years, right? If we're talking about three years ago, I was already pretty familiar with what was going on. But the speed at which we can process user requests has gone up tremendously. A lot of our core team have been working on SPAC for a while. Todd Gamblin started it. He's been working on it since 2013. And myself and two of the other core developers have been working on it for five years. So that really increases what we're able to do. A lot of it is the Slack channel. We have a very active Slack channel for SPAC. At any given time, we generally have 60 or 70 people actively online communicating. And that's probably our main channel for communication, even more than GitHub with the external community. That's where things will first come to our attention. And then when we figure out whether it's a user error or a bug, then we'll move on to a GitHub issue, eventually a pull request to fix it, et cetera. I think SPAC's a really great model for how to develop and sustain open source. And I get the sense that if you do it right, it might even be easier to do in a national lab. Do you agree? And what makes it easier if you agree to develop it in a national lab than say academia or just on your own? That's interesting because that's not the comparison that I first thought you were going to make. And I think that where my mind was going with the comparison actually says a lot about the answer to that question. My first thought is that you were going to compare this to doing open source development in industry. And I think the reason that that's my first point of comparison is that the resources available at the national labs and the scale on which work can be done are so much larger than what's typical in academia or working on your own. Now, there are certainly academic projects that are exceptions to that, that operate on the same sort of large scale. And those end up being a lot of the projects that help contribute back to SPAC, say Fermilab and CERN have contributed a lot to SPAC. But in a typical small team environment in academia, it's very hard to have enough free cycles, and I, I mean human cycles, not machine cycles, to embark in the sort of project like SPAC that's going to take four years or two years before it starts to really bear fruit. And if you're absolutely strapped for personnel, 
you just don't have the time to go off and do something like that and see it through to the point where it starts becoming a force multiplier for you instead of a time sink. Industry and the national labs have that ability to take a longer view to something. And the initial comparison I thought I was going to make is that the national labs actually have that ability more than industry. There are lots of things that are inconvenient about working with the government, red tape and controlled information, all sorts of things. But it's very freeing to not have a profit motive. And while industry can take a long view about some things, they have quarterly earnings reports, they have shareholders that they're beholden to. At the National Lab, we're obviously beholden to the country in terms of our output has to be for the common good. But we're able, with the way we're set up, to take a very long view about what that is and really see through something like SPAC. Todd Gamblin started working on it in 2013. And I started working on it in 2015, and our mailing list was seeing maybe one or two messages a week. And now I have to have an email filter set up because I get about 200 emails a day about it. Taking those two years to develop SPAC has been tremendously beneficial for the science that we're able to do at the lab and also for other people around the world who use SPAC. But there's not a lot of atmospheres in which someone can both go into a bunker and work on something for a while without it providing any immediate benefits and can then turn around and have the resources to throw out a problem to be able to have a larger team over time. So speaking of a larger team over time, what are some of the challenges that you've had to face as the project has scaled? The first challenge I think of is going to be familiar to anyone in any working environment, and that is the personnel lags behind the need. It's very hard to go to management and say, hey, at our current trajectory, we'll need another person in three months. So let's hire them now so that they know what they're doing in three months when we need them. That's, that's a hard ask anywhere. So we're chronically underpowered in terms of the core team at Livermore for what we're trying to support. The flip side of that is that we get a lot of contributions from other places, and that certainly is a huge benefit to the SPAC project. Livermore has contributed maybe 400 out of the 5,000 packages in SPAC. The network effects of this are tremendous in terms of a repository of knowledge about how to build things. But in terms of core development, it's very difficult to maintain coding standards and best practices across an open source community like that, just because everyone's going to have a slightly different idea about how best to do it. And sometimes you need someone to have the authority to say, these are all good ideas, but we can only do one of them. And it's going to be this. And obviously, this is a problem in open source in general. A lot of projects end up with a sort of benevolent dictator for life. I think that's the term the Python project used, who has to kind of make these final determinations when democracy just won't cut it. And we've been able to do that pretty well. Todd created the project and everyone sort of respects his view when it comes down to it. But that's definitely a challenge for open source development in general. And we have our fair share of that, especially with around 700 contributors to the project. I would particularly call out, say, Adam Stewart, who is a grad student at the University of Illinois, and before that was a system administrator at Argonne National Lab. And he does a tremendous amount of coordinating the package ecosystem and is incredibly talented in this role. And because of what he's able to do personally, we're more able to get by without automation and able to 
keep the community as welcoming as it is. And as the project grows, we might have to add more automation just to keep up. Or maybe we'll be able to find more people who have this particular talent and are able to help out in those sorts of ways and keep things the way we've been doing them. It really is something that we'll have to figure out what we're doing over time. But the ease of contributing is definitely something we value very highly. Thank you, Adam. And if we're ever able to clone people, we will clone you many times and then build an army of SPAC maintainers. <laughs> Absolutely. So to switch up a little bit, can you tell us generally what it's like to work at a national lab? And I don't mean sort of specifics, again, of talking about SPAC, but things like life balance and career progression and some of the softer things. I guess work-life balance is the place to start. I think that's the big recruiting pitch for the laboratory is the work-life balance. I'm sure that anyone could guess that the government through the national labs isn't able to offer the sort of perks like stock options and free lunches that a place like Google or wherever is able to. But the experience of working for the lab is incredibly positive. The work-life balance is very nice. I tell a story to people when I'm recruiting of early on at the lab, I was really worried about my productivity, right? This is my first job out of college. I don't know exactly what's expected of me. And I'm really pushing myself pretty hard to be productive in the short term, working late nights, working on weekends some. And I remember maybe at some point, six months in, sitting with my boss and he told me we were working on something and it was getting towards about 6 p.m. And he said he was going home and then basically told me to go home. And I said, oh, no, I, you know, I want to blah, 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 whatever it was that I wanted to figure out. And he said, OK, if you really want to, but you should go home. I don't care so much what you get done between now and next month. We're trying to optimize for what you're going to get done for the next 30 years. And the lab's very much a place where you're going to look at your career on the timescale of 30 years, and they want you to stay for 30 years. And I know lots of people enjoy jumping around from job to job and trying to maximize what they can get in that way. But for me, there's something very freeing in my life about having the sort of stability that I've been working the same job for five years. I see myself working it for the next five at least. And that gives a lot of freedom in how you plan the rest of your life. Yeah, that sounds so lovely. So in terms of career progression, since we're on RC Stories, I have to ask, is there some representation of a research software engineer in the lab? The concept of a research software engineer is kind of hard to map onto the lab because the concept of a research software engineer comes very much from a sort of work that wasn't being properly recognized for what it was. And the lab doesn't have the same history of not recognizing computing work in research. And so there's not a sort of special cutout for research software engineers because research software engineering is pretty fundamental to all of the computing that's done at the lab. And so our big application code teams dating back at least into the 90s are collaborations between physicists, computational physicists, applied mathematicians, and computer scientists. 
and those folks have always been on equal footings. They're they're not recognized identically, but they're recognized in kind. The computer scientists on those teams are recognized for their computer science contributions to those teams in a way that I think is becoming more the norm in academia, but I think was not the norm when these teams started. And so when I go out to a conference and people are talking about a research software engineer, I recognize that that's what I do. My initial job at the lab was very much about getting research-grade software into production. So I identify as a research software engineer in that sense, but I very much don't have the same set of concerns that I see presented in the RSE community because I work somewhere that's already been pretty good at addressing those issues. I find it really interesting because it really solidifies this idea that the RSC movement really grew out of institutions not valuing and supporting the role. And arguably national labs have respected and supported the role very long before it was even a named thing. So that makes me wonder when you kind of look at national labs and then other institutions that don't really have this kind of role, how can national labs help or support these other institutions? What role do national labs play in the RSC community? I think a lot of this ends up just coming down to time, which is an unfortunate answer for anyone who wants change. But the importance of computing to research in general has only been growing. And I think that what we've seen with the RSE community is a recognition of the importance of computing to research and that maybe institutions were a little slower to recognize that than they should have been. The labs have been doing very computational research since the nuclear test ban treaty in the 90s. And so the labs have been doing types of research that are exclusively computational since the 90s, which is not to say they weren't doing lots of computation before that. So I think that the labs provide a pretty good model of how to incorporate computing into research in the hard sciences. And in particular, the way that these interdisciplinary teams have been formed. A lot of times in discussion with other computer scientists, you hear a lot of derision about research code. And frequently, I think that's because we're asking people to do things that are outside of their expertise. No one is going to ask me to design the next great physics experiment. It would be preposterous. And yet we do the same thing all the time with physicists and chemists and biologists, where we ask them to be the initial implementers of code that eventually needs to be performant. And making performant code is an expertise. And it's what we do as research software engineers. And quite frankly, it's what we do as software engineers in general. And we need, not we as research software engineers, we as the world of scientific research need to recognize that when software is being written, computer scientists need to be in the room from the get-go. And I think that's something that at least my lab, I don't know the history of computing at the other national labs quite as well, has been very good at from the beginning. And I think that including research software engineers in the process from the beginning also helps make clear the importance of that work to the overall scientific product and helps on the administrative side with people recognizing the importance of what we're doing to the overall project of the institution that helps with getting the appropriate recognition for what we do. Can you talk about what community looks like within the lab and how people work together? 
So I guess part of that gets back to what I said earlier about not really having an internal designation of a research software engineer, because that ends up not being the relevant unit of structure. The unit of structure at the lab ends up very much being about the project that you work on. So working on SPAC, this is a pure computer science application. My community is other computer scientists. I work in a group called the Tools Development Group in Livermore Computing, which is the computing center. So I sit in the computing center and making it easier to install things through SPAC is a service that we're providing as a center to our users and because we open source it to the community at large. For other research software engineers, that community might look very different. If you're on a big code team, a big code team at Livermore might be 20 people, and that might be five, seven dedicated computer scientists and the rest physicists and applied mathematicians. So if you're looking for what the software engineering community is, your, your local community is going to be the computer science portion of your code team. And then there's the horizontal ties with the computer scientists on other teams. And I guess in everything I've said so far, I give the impression that someone might work on one team, but that's generally not the case. People are going to work on multiple projects. In general, in a career at the lab, it's considered a good idea to be working on more than one project at a time. And one of the nice things about that is that you can shift from one project to the next without being a completely new at everything you're doing at the same time. So you can pick up something in half your time and then become an expert there and maybe decide you want to shift in that direction or maybe decide that wasn't really for you. You've worked on it for a couple of years. Now you're going to drop that half of your time, or you could keep that and you could drop the other half of your time and then move on to something else. And you can sort of walk your career in one direction or another. But to tie it back into the community, that means that you're generally forming a sort of mesh of working relationships with other computer scientists at the code interaction level. One code might depend on another or might use the same library. So you interact in user meetings or something like that. Has it been harder to work together since everyone's working from home? I think that that very much varies by team. I would say for my work, that hasn't been all that relevant. I actually was doing a large amount of working remotely before the pandemic hit. And because so much SPAC work goes on in the open source community, that tends to make our internal interactions go through the same channels as well. So my office, when we're working on site, is right next door to Todd's. And I'd say more often than not, we talk through Slack, even though our offices are right next door to each other, because we're already on Slack talking with other people on the project. So that's what's convenient. I would say that my interactions, like I said earlier, I do a lot of management of the inner source SPAC community at Livermore. And I think that's obviously been a little more affected by the pandemic, not being able to sit down face-to-face -face with people. It decreases the bandwidth of communication. None of us are able to convey as much in a Slack message or an email as we would in a face-to-face -face conversation. But the tools are there. We get on WebEx meetings. We chat when we need to. We email when we need to. The correct hodgepodge of different communication methods I don't think that my productivity has suffered too much from the pandemic, although it's obviously the way I do my work has certainly changed a bit. That's great to hear. So we're coming up on time. I have just a few more questions. How would you like to personally grow or what would you like to learn in the next couple of years? I think the big one for me currently is working on communication 
and project leadership. As the project grows, there are more separable tasks that one person or another is leading. And the communication methods of working on a single team where someone else is in charge is very different than when you have a devolved task from the main project that you're in charge of and you're going to be leading other people. So that's a big place that I feel like I have room for personal growth within the SPAC project. So last question. I saw that you like to climb. Can you tell us about the separate passion and is this something you're able to do around Livermore? Yeah, so I love rock climbing. When the world was normal, I was going to the gym a couple times a week. From Livermore, I guess that was, you know, 30 minutes away. The Bay Area has everything, but it's not always close together. Northern California is a great place for rock climbing in general, depending on the type of climbing you like. It's all here somewhere. Joshua Tree National Park, Yosemite. I think that there's a reason that there's a large climbing community at the lab, and it's that rock climbing ends up very much being a puzzle that you solve with your body. Before I climbed a lot, I generally thought of rock climbing as mostly dependent on your physical strength. And that's obviously incredibly important, but you can change a lot in your ability to climb without changing your physical strength at all through technique and through thinking your way through a problem that I have to do this first before I can do that, because if I shift my weight over, now I can move that leg. And that ends up being a mode of thinking that is fundamentally similar to programming. And so we have kind of a networking group at the lab of people who enjoy climbing, frequently go to the climbing gym together. And I don't think it's any coincidence that a lot of the software engineers at the lab enjoy rock climbing. That is a really lovely metaphor. And now that I think of it, a lot of people in my grad school lab were also avid climbers, and it, it totally makes sense. So Greg, it was really great to have you on RC Stories today. I think it's really important to have many different perspectives, and that includes national labs, because you guys have been doing this right all along without even putting a label on it. So thank you for being on RC Stories, and I know you're probably really tired after this week at Supercomputing, so I hope that you have maybe a restful weekend coming up, and you know maybe someday we will get out of this corona apocalypse and you'll be able to go back to the gym and climb again with your colleagues. Well, fortunately, uh, outdoors is a lot safer than other things. So I'll be, I have off tomorrow and I'll be climbing outside. But yeah, thank you for having me. It's been great chatting and we'll catch up soon, I guess. Sounds like a plan.